The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. I'm recording on Friday, November 27th, 2020. And we've got more moves to tell you about at W Corporate and Tropicana Field. As it turns out, Tropicana Field is not an open-air stadium. It is a dome, contrary to the falsehoods that were said by a certain member of the media landscape. But this Thanksgiving week, we'll go deep into the world of pay-per-view pricing. In fact, the pay-per-view business overall. What's left of it? How relevant is it? Particularly to AEW and WWE at this point. And what is the future of independent professional wrestling in those soon-to-be, hopefully, post-corona times? All that, and, and probably not more than that, actually. Because sometimes I even have to go back and, and edit out things in this preview here that I didn't get time to talk about. So that's that's how it usually goes. But first... Following up from last week, two additional WWE executives, actually I don't know if it's right to call them executives, but General Counsel Brian Nurse of WWE is no longer with WWE, as well as Senior Vice President of Data Strategy, Pam Murren. Both of those reports, according to PW Insider, Data Strategy had been one of the big initiatives of now former co-president George Berrios. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. And Pro Wrestling Tees owner Ryan Barkin in an interview with Chris Van Vlay. Barkin says that Orange Cassidy is Pro Wrestling Tees number one shirt seller of 2020. More on that later. And despite my reckless assertions made last week, Tropicana Field in Tampa, which is going to be the new home of the WWE Thunderdome come December, Tropicana Field is not an outdoor stadium but it is an indoor domed venue. In fact, it is the only non-retractable dome in Major League Baseball. Of course, for Major League Baseball, it is the home of the Tampa Bay Rays. So not an outdoor facility that might make it safer to have fans in attendance when WWE runs there. So correction from what I said last week, and that that is actually our monthly uh, deliberate factual error which is made in order to measure the real audience of WrestleNomics Radio. So to go back to WWE executives, or at least senior vice presidents, who are moving in and out of WWE, Brian Nurse, who had been the general counsel, uh, WWE put out a press release in September 2018 announcing that Brian Nurse had joined WWE as the senior vice president and general counsel and secretary 
he reported, according to the press release, directly to Chairman and CEO Vince McMahon. Uh, at least publicly, we only really heard from Brian Nurse on that W shareholders meeting, which we got the audio of back in July. And then Pam Murin, Senior Vice President of Data Strategy for WB, who had been with the company since March 2016. Uh, previously, she spent 14 years at Time Warner Cable, according to her LinkedIn profile. And I would think that move has something to do with just a, a change in strategy as things get straightened out here with the addition of new Chief Revenue Officer, Nick Kahn, as well as new CFO, Christina Salen. So I've seen some talk online that, you know, maybe this is indicative of WB not being in touch with how important data is uh, going forward in the future. And I don't think that's what's happening here. I think this is a reaction to probably the overemphasis that George Berrios put on the value of data to WB in particular. And I know Nick Khan sort of reasserted that data is valuable. Uh, user data is something that they want to maintain uh, if or when they sell pay-per-views or other W Network content to uh, a major streaming or media player. So I, I, I think they recognize value in it still, but that Barrios overemphasized the value to WB in particular. And this is probably a good place to start with today's discussion to come later about pay-per-view. You know, having the W Network creates millions of user accounts. W now has millions of user accounts with some information attached to each one of those user accounts about probably things like location, income level, maybe other demographic information. And that's useful for targeted marketing internally when it comes to uh, sending messages out to people about events that might be in their area post-corona or about merchandise that may be related to some other behavior that the user exhibited in the past, whether it's uh, viewing activity on the W network or previous purchases. So I think W's user data is valuable to them internally for targeted marketing, but I think they also had the idea under Barrios that they could use their user data and sell it to third parties, much like Facebook does or Google or other internet and social media big tech companies do. But my understanding is that as it turns out, W has attempted to do this, but has found that there isn't that much value. That is, uh, nobody really wants to buy the user data of wrestling fans, probably due to the income demographics that wrestling fans tend to have. And maybe even W in particular uh, has, if, if viewership uh, demographics are any indication we see a lot more older viewership in Raw, SmackDown, and NXT versus AEW. And advertisers tend to prefer younger audiences that are less brand loyal. So with the benefit of hindsight, not that I saw this at the time in 2014, but with the benefit of hindsight, it, it appears clearer now that Berrios uh, over-projected the ways in which he could apply big tech strategies to WWE in terms of uh, exploiting the value of data, which makes sense if you're Facebook or Google, less sense if you're WWE, and with the price point strategy related to the WWE network, not fully understanding how price inelastic the demand is for 
WWE pay-per-views. So what is price inelasticity? So as uh, some listeners may know, uh, as I continue with my ongoing education, which I, I got my, uh, I got my education in advertising from watching the entire uh, series Mad Men. I, uh, then I got my education in journalism after that by watching the entire series of Newsroom, the HBO series with Jeff Daniels. And then now, now I am getting my, uh, my education, I think, in law by uh, watching the series The Wire. Now just starting on season two of that. But in season one, there's a scene where String, Stringer is in community college. He's the real businessman of the drug dealing operation. And he's going to community college and taking business classes. And in one of those scenes, there's a, a reference to price inelasticity or inelasticity of demand. This can have to do with supply as well. But in the case of wrestling pay-per-views, which is what we're going to talk about today, there really isn't any uh, limit to the supply in pay-per-views, right? It's, it's simply a media product. And as long as you have the bandwidth and the transmission capability, you can deliver to an unlimited number of customers. So may, maybe, maybe not law, criminal justice. Maybe criminal justice is what The Wire is, is giving, giving me my uh, media education on. And uh, there's actually this great scene in The Wire in season one that I'm going to make you listen to now. Because I think it explains a lot of why things in wrestling are the way that they are. And not just in wrestling, of course, but in lots of other parts of life and businesses and various fields. Will, if he can, that's the point. Well, what's the point? The point is that Maury Levy is a past officer of the Monumental Bar Association. And unless I want to spend my whole life as a fucking ASA, I can't spend my afternoons pissing on people who matter. Another career in the balance. <sighs> fuck you. No, fuck you. If only half you motherfuckers in the state's attorney's office didn't want to be judges, didn't want to be partners in some downtown law firm, if half of you had the fucking balls to follow through, you know what would happen? Uh, a guy like that would be indicted, tried, and convicted. And the rest of them would back up enough so we could push a clean case or two through your courthouse. But no, everybody stays friends, everybody gets paid, and everybody's got a fucking future. But, but I think it speaks to the costs of... And, and it seems to be one of the themes of Jimmy McNulty to the to the point that I've watched the series that uh doing the right thing and doing what is fair or equitable comes at a great personal cost. I mean th think of why it's so difficult to unionize professional wrestlers is because the people who have the most leverage to initiate unionization are the people who are the best taken care of, who have the most to lose. Wrestlers further down on the power structure have the future of their careers at stake as well if they participate or try to initiate unionization. And you may even want to be careful that what you say publicly is not too truthful, especially as it concerns certain people in power, lest they come back to bite you one day. But anyway, pay-per-view. And by the way, it was some 33 years ago this week that in 1987, the pay-per-view showdown between Jim Crockett Promotions offering Starcade 87 on pay-per-view was opposed by Survivor Series from the World Wrestling Federation running head-to-head -head two big wrestling cards live on pay-per-view, running head-to-head -head with Vince McMahon of the WWF or Titan Sports was the parent company at the time. 
Vince McMahon of Titan Sports threatening cable companies that chose to air Starcade. He threatened those carriers that they wouldn't be allowed to carry WrestleMania 4 in the following spring if they chose to carry Starcade, the rival company, Jim Crock Promotions. And as a result, only a handful of carriers carried NWA Starcade 1987 with the main event featuring Ric Flair against Ron Garvin for the NWA title in a cage match. But anyway, pay-per-view. Pay-per-view these days has been largely cannibalized by WWE in, in terms of their business, but AEW All Elite Wrestling still uses pay-per-view primarily as the way to distribute and to sell their quarterly super events. AEW does somewhere between 80,000 and 100,000 pay-per-view buys for each one of their events. And an interesting trend to, to watch and to observe here is that AEW actually did two pay-per-view events before their debut of AEW Dynamite on TNT. And those two pay-per-view events that preceded the debut of Dynamite actually did a, a, the same. Uh, Double or Nothing 2019, by my estimation, did 98,000 buys, the very first pay-per-view, the very first event of any kind, in fact, in the history of AEW, followed by All Out 2019 in August. So Double or Nothing was in May, and then All Out was at the end of August, and it did about 88,000 pay-per-view buys, by my estimation. Then AEW debuted on TNT with Dynamite in October 2019, and in the old world, the old world of old wrestling media, you would think that now that you're on a major cable network being uh, viewed by hundreds of thousands of people every week, whereas before you had no TV distribution, no weekly TV show, in the old media world, you would use your TV to promote your destination product, whether that was a ticket sale or a pay-per-view sale. So AEW debuts with Dynamite on TNT October 2nd, I believe it is, 2019. Then the following month in November, Full Gear 2019, the first pay-per-view since the debut on TNT. And that, in fact, did about 80,000 pay-per-view buys less than either Double or Nothing 2019 or All Out 2019, two events that happened before AEW was ever on TNT with a weekly program. How does that make sense? In the old world, that doesn't make sense. But we now live in a world, I, I guess, just inundated with enough internet, social media, that those pre-Dynamite pay-per-view events for AEW were able to do as well as their current pay-per-view events. But you can make the observation that the addition of having a weekly TV program on TNT did not add any net gain in buys in significant numbers. Now you might say, that, well, if they, if, if AEW had only continued to be a occasional pay-per-view product, their buys may have diminished over time. Maybe that's the case. But there was no net gain in pay-per-view buys, at least in the case of Full Gear 2019, 80,000. Then they followed it in February with Revolution 2020 with about 90,000. These are my estimates, again, basically based on guidance that I've been given by people who are in AEW. Double or Nothing in May 2020, the first pay-per-view since the pandemic, 105,000 buys, the most successful pay-per-view for AEW up to that point. But it also coincides with basically the low point for AEW viewership. Those months in the spring where the pandemic had taken away live audiences and all four of the big wrestling programs viewership suffered. 
AEW's viewership started to recover through the summer, and AEW did All Out 2020. With viewership on the rise, All Out did a lower number of buys at 90,000. And maybe you could say that, well, Double or Nothing is, since it's the one-year anniversary of their debut, maybe Double or Nothing is their biggest event, and All Out is a relatively smaller event. And that one did 90,000 buys. And now with viewership declining slightly through the fall, Full Gear 2020 in November, doing about 85,000 buys. Almost equal to what All Out did when viewership was higher. But anyway, I think the lesson here is that these small changes in viewership are not the thing that is going to coincide with major changes in pay-per-view buys. So an example that we have to draw back on history about this subject with is we can look at uh, WWE's history with pay-per-view from 1995 on. We're going to isolate from 1995 on because before 1995, they're not really doing monthly pay-per-views yet. They're doing pay-per-views four or five a year. But in 1995, the in-your-house pay-per-views began. In-your-house pay-per-views, by the way, starting out with a lower price point. More on that later. But if you look at North American buys and compare that to the ratings, the TV ratings for Raw and for SmackDown between the years of 1995 and 2013, stopping at 2013 because that's the last full year before the WWE Network comes out. And you see a pretty strong correlation between TV viewership and pay-per-view buys. If you have to know the R squared, the R squared uh, for the relationship between pay-per-view and raw is a 0.92. So a number, a 1.0 is a perfect relationship. So almost a perfect relationship there. With SmackDown, a strong relationship too, but not as strong. Uh, the relationship between SmackDown and pay-per-view buys, a 0.82. Tell me what other podcast out there in the media ecosystem, not just the wrestling media ecosystem, but the media ecosystem at large. Is it at large or writ large? Anyway. You tell me what other podcast in this world is talking to you about R squareds. If there is one, tell me what it is because I need to listen to it. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's apparent that the, the lesson of this story is that what drives pay-per-view buys is something along the lines of what drives the popularity of, of a brand overall. As WF got more popular as a brand, its TV ratings increased, and thus its uh, pay-per-view buys increased as well as consumers became more excited about the pay-per-view events because the product itself got over, and I would argue that that's because of the, the stars that were associated, uh, particularly in the late 90s as WF reached its peak in popularity. It's about the popularity of the stars and the anticipation around the matches that are happening, being delivered on pay-per-view. And of course, after the, the 90s, uh, the peak in the 90s and the year 2000, ratings and pay-per-view buys declined thereafter. But to give other comparisons to AEW, we can look at other products that went through a similar period where they weren't on uh, primetime weekly cable TV with a weekly program, and then they were, and how did that affect their pay-per-view buys? Well, there's three examples that I can think of that are similar to that, this, similar to what AEW experienced in terms of being on pay-per-view without weekly primetime high-coverage cable, and then being on pay-per-view with that. And the three brands that I can think of that are like that are WCW in the mid-90s with the addition of Nitro, uh, UFC 
in the mid-2000s with the addition of the Ultimate Fighter on Spike, and Total Nonstop Action in 2005, really a, a similar period, actually, uh, with UFC, but in 2005 where Impact, well, now, now known as Impact Wrestling, Total Nonstop Action, better known as the unfortunate initialism, TNA, had been on pay-per-view for years, in fact, before debuting on Spike with a weekly program. So let's start with the WCW. WCW, of course, had been on cable, uh, TBS especially, for years, and had been on syndication throughout the country as well for years, and it had a a number of pay-per-views before 1995, before the debut of WCW Nitro on TNT. But before the debut of WCW Nitro, WCW's pay-per-views were around the area of what AEW's pay-per-views are, around 100,000, with a great deal of variance. But after the debut of WCW Nitro, they're still around the 100,000 range. And then by 1996, which was the first full year with WCW Nitro, total pay-per-view buys went from 1 million in 1995 to 2.3 million in 1996. And in, in 1995, they did nine pay-per-views. In 1996, they did 10 pay-per-views. So almost the same number of pay-per-views and more than doubling pay-per-view buys. Obviously, there's other components to what made pay-per-view buys increase so much, and that, I think, largely has to do with the popularity of the new faction, the New World Order, the NWO. And you can find WCW pay-per-view buys information, actually, on WrestleNomics.com. That is one of the most popular pages on WrestleNomics.com. It gets uh, daily visits for some reason. I I think it's because people are doing their WCW uh, retrospective podcasts, and they, they want to reference what pay-per-view buys were for a given event. And we have uh, a CDH estimate, CDH standing for Christopher D. Harrington, better known to some as Mookie. I think better known to others these days as merely Harrington. But Mookie went to the trouble of uh, coming to an estimate about every WCW pay-per-view that they ever put on pay-per-view, which is now enshrined in table form and bar graph form on WrestleNomics.com in the resources section. So that's WCW. We go further down on the timeline and we see UFC. UFC has its debut of the Ultimate Fighter, the reality show that actually debuted as uh, getting the lead in on Spike from WWE Raw. Really the most successful lead in that WWE Raw ever provided. So in, in many ways, uh, UFC now, you know, a, a product that does uh, great pay-per-view business, uh, you know, can credit some of the, the jumpstart to its popularity, which begins really strong in the middle 2000s uh, due to the lead-in that was provided on Spike TV from uh, WWE Raw on Monday nights. As the Ultimate Fighter debuted, I, I guess it must have been at uh, just after the overrun at about 11.15 p.m., you know, building up fights that eventually did happen on pay-per-view with the likes of Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock, Chuck Liddell, Randy Orton. But before the debut on Spike with the Ultimate Fire, UFC was struggling to do pay-per-view buys over 100,000. And the first UFC pay-per-view after the debut of the Ultimate Fighter did 280,000 pay-per-view buys. I'm guessing that's the first sh- or the second Shamrock Ortiz fight. And by UFC's sixth pay-per-view since the debut of the Ultimate Fighter on Spike, they did 4,000 pay-per-view buys. Actually, I do have information for this here. Let's see. No, it was Couture Liddell 2 that was the first pay-per-view after the debut of the Ultimate Fighter. And the Ultimate Fighter series, I believe, was was building up that fight. 
Then Liddell versus Couture 3 do, does 400,000 pay-per-view buys. And then it's UFC uh, 62 that hits a then enormous 775,000 pay-per-view buys. That's with the second Tito Ortiz versus Ken Shamrock fight. And then in the case of TNA, according to the info on OSW Review, TNA pay-per-view buys were something like 15,000 before they debuted on Spike. This is just after WWE goes back to the USA Network. Spike, a Viacom property, decides to get wrestling programming back on their Spike Network and brings Impact Wrestling, the weekly TNA program, over to Spike. And the first pay-per-view after the debut on TV does 35,000 buys, so more than doubling what they had been doing in the two pay-per-views prior. But TNA never really breaks over 50,000 pay-per-view buys in its history. Maybe the Angle Joe pay-per-view? Let's see what that did. So Angle and Joe, uh, TNA Genesis 2006, does do 60,000 buys, according to the records on OSW Review. Uh, And then, actually, the Bound for Glory 2006 pay-per-view also did 55,000 buys, so breaking 50,000 that time. And TNA Lockdown 2008 also did 55,000 buys. And what was on TNA Lockdown 2008? That is the Joe Angle cage match. So stacking up the case for the uh, Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame, I think former candidate, I think he fell off the ballot, Samoa Joe, uh, current WWE commentator. Anyway, WCW, TNA, and UFC all hitting new heights in pay-per-view following their debut on primetime cable programming. But obviously, we are in a different media situation now today where All Elite Wrestling has debuted on TNT and is yet to break through on another tier in terms of pay-per-view sales. Now we're only just over one year into AW being on TNT. And a, a lot of the awareness clearly that people had, or at least people who were willing to spend $50 on pay-per-view, that's the cost of, a, of an AEW pay-per-view uh, in the U.S. at least, that audience that's willing to buy an AEW pay-per-view was already aware, apparently, about AEW before TNT. And it's pretty clear to me that the level of viewership that AEW has now, somewhere around seven hundred to 800,000 viewers weekly in the U.S., that viewership total is going to have to grow substantially before we see a big increase, before I would expect to see a big increase in pay-per-view buys. So with AEW and their pay-per-view buys and their uh, TV viewership, I, I put all this information on a graph, on what is called an Excel, a combo graph. And I put the question out there, why hasn't AEW been able to capture basically more pay-per-view buys than what they have? And, and some of the responses I got were related to the pay-per-view price. And so friend of, of Russellomics, Gavin Bridge from Variety, among others, pointed out that they feel that the pay-per-view price, which right now for AEW is about $50 US, again, uh, WWE's pay-per-view price, which you can still buy pay-per-views for WWE on pay-per-view for $60. And a lot of people feel like that price is just too high. And in fact, there may be some correspondents here at WrestleNomics headquarters who feel like that price is too high. <laughs> but that may be at, let's say, $25. Some customers would be more willing to buy a pay-per-view. Now, history doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it does tend to rhyme. and It does provide lessons. And now at a, a different time in, in, in place in history at a very different media uh, era, WWE basically conducted a multi-year experiment 
with pay-per-view price. And throughout the late 80s and early 90s, WWE, WF at the time, put out pay-per-views, uh, at least in the 90s by the time that I was paying attention, and they, and they were $29.95, $30 for a pay-per-view. And then in May 1995, WWE introduced the In Your House pay-per-view. which of course, So this was a, a, a multiple times per year pay-per-view brand that uh, had something to do with giving somebody a, a, a house. A random, well, I don't know if it was a pay-per-view customer, would win a house. Let's, you can Google it. We're not going to get into that today. But the idea was that WWE would do more pay-per-views per year rather than just the four or five annual pay-per-views. They would do maybe as many as 12 pay-per-views a year, but the, those pay-per-views in between, those additional pay-per-views, would be at a lower price. I, I guess the psychology was that you didn't want to expect the customer to spend $30 every month, but maybe they would spend half that. Maybe they would spend $30 five times a month, or excuse me, five times a year, and then $15 on those months in between, half the price. Maybe there was more revenue to squeeze out of these pay-per-view customers. So these fourteen ninety-five pay-per-views in 1995, the in-your-house pay-per-views, did uh, just under 200,000 pay-per-view buys for the first three. The fourth one, though, did only about 100,000 pay-per-view buys. So I don't know what the internal story was, but at, at that point, W decide, decided to raise the price $5. So now instead of $15, it's $20 for the pay-per-view. Really, $19.95. So the first $20 in-your-house pay-per-view did about the same, just under 100,000 buys. But then the second $20 in-your-house pay-per-view did almost 200000 again. And they fluctuate all over the place thereafter. But going from $15 to $20 is about a 33% price increase. And there's a lot of variance, but they're all doing around 150,000 pay-per-view buys, give or take, at $20. And so it stays at $20 throughout 1996 and most of 1997. But then uh, for September 1997, beginning in September 1997, I think that's the ground zero pay-per-view main evented by The Undertaker and Shawn Michaels. I don't know why I know that, but this is the match before the first Hell in the Cell. But anyway, September 1997, WWE decides to raise the price to $30, the same price as all the other pay-per-views. This is what WCW is doing at the same time as well. I don't think WCW ever had any any difference in its pay-per-view price for any of its pay-per-views. I think they were all $30. Maybe there, there might have been a lower pay-per-view price early on in the pay-per-view history, but WCW understands doing the same price point for all their pay-per-views regardless. And WF decides to fall suit, and we're just going to do all the pay-per-views at $30. I know there was some uh, difference in, in, the, in the number of hours that the pay-per-views were at the time. They're all going to be three-hour pay-per-views, all going to be $30 pay-per-views. And that first in-your-house $30 pay-per-view, with a 50% increase in the price point, does about the same as what the $20 pay-per-views had been doing, 150,000 buys. In fact, the following pay-per-view, that is an in-your-house pay-per-view at $30, that's the Bad Blood pay-per-view, the unfortunate death of um, Brian Pillman, which had, you know, he had been found dead earlier that day. But that's main evented with the first ever Hell in the Cell match. That does almost 200,000 pay-per-view buys at a $30 price point. That's about equal with what the highest $20 pay-per-view had done. So this is late 1997, and things get complicated here as far as this analysis goes because, as people know, following late 1997, WF is about to hit, is about to ramp up to its peak in popularity. 
1998, TV ratings increase, pay-per-view buys increase, and WWE does some of the best business it's ever done. Uh, this side of TV rights fees, of course. And then after after WWE's peak in popularity, following 2001, WWE uh, raises the, the pay-per-view price point to $35. And popularity is gradually declining, but pay-per-view buys don't seem to be suffering worse than popularity. Overall, is declining. Uh, WrestleMania over this time has a number of different price points, which uh, I'm going to post the graph it, it, on the Patreon with the notes of this podcast. So you can patreon.com slash freshonomics and you can become a $5 patron and you can look at these wonderful graphs that I'm looking at now. These uh, intense color-coded graphs that very clearly show where all the price point changes are and compares the, the trends in WRAW viewership as well. But in 2006, then, the price point goes up to $40. Uh, pretty soon, things are, things are going to get complicated as far as standard def and high def with a higher price point for high def. So we're talking the, the lower standard def price point than in, let's see here, it goes to $45 in 2010. And throughout these price increases, WWE Raw viewership is declining a bit and so are pay-per-view buys. But as uh, we discussed earlier, there's a really strong relationship between WWE Raw TV ratings and total North American pay-per-view buys. So ultimately the point I'm getting at is it doesn't appear that, that the increase in pay-per-view price point drove a corresponding decrease in pay-per-view buys. Whatever the pay-per-view price was across time from 1995 to 2013, people bought relative to the, the ratings of Raw much more than they did relative to what the pay-per-view price was. Now, I'm, I'm sure if WWE raised their pay-per-view price to $100 you know, or something very high, we would see eventually a decrease in pay-per-view buys independent of television viewership. But the lesson here is that from 1995 to 2013, the standard B pay-per-view went from $14.95 to $44.95. And this is over a course of 18 years. So there's inflation there. But if I run $15 uh, through the inflation calculator, $15 in 1995 is, is only $23 in 2013. There in 2013, where they're charging $45 for a similar product with less hours of pay-per-view time, granted, but a similar product that they were charging $15 for, or the equivalent at that point at $23 for in 1995. So ultimately, my point is, my opinion is, I don't think lowering the pay-per-view price for AEW pay-per-views would be a good business decision. It would encourage some people to buy pay-per-views who are not currently buying pay-per-views. It certainly wouldn't chase anybody off who is already buying pay-per-views. But it's pretty simple math to imagine. If, say, you're going to cut the pay-per-view price in half, you've got to double your pay-per-view buys, more than double your pay-per-view buys, to make more money as a result. So if you're going to go from a $50 price point for an AEW pay-per-view down to a $25 price point, you've got to go from drawing about 100,000 pay-per-view buys to 200,000 pay-per-view buys. So the question is, do you, you know, you've, you've got to believe that you're going to sell in excess 
of 200,000 pay-per-view buys for an AEW pay-per-view when you're currently selling about 100,000. And I, I, I'm just not sold on the idea that you're going to double AEW pay-per-view buys by cutting the price in half. Um, if, if anything, I don't necessarily think that they should raise the, pay, the pay-per-view price, but I'd be more open to the idea of raising the pay-per-view price. You'd be driving more revenue out of each buy, obviously, that way. But I, but I think this shows, the, the history of WWE's pay-per-view price points shows that, back to our original point some 20 minutes ago, that wrestling pay-per-view, despite what the W Network uh, has taught us, we'll get into that in a, in a moment, uh, wrestling pay-per-views are inelastic to price. They don't, the, the demand for pay-per-views, uh, for wrestling pay-per-views, don't change that much depending on what the price is. Clearly, there are bounds at which you chase people off. Buys are going to go down drastically if we start charging $150 for a pay-per-view. But if we increase the price by 5 or $10, I don't think it changes that much. As much as you may hear anecdotes about how the, the, the price is too high, or I remember hearing anecdotes about how the $90 or $100 price point for the, uh, the boxing fight between uh, Manny Pacquiao and... Floyd Mayweather in 2015, like that, that would chase people off. And lo and behold, that fight did huge business. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from Arena Club com the only repack that provides real value a complete view of all possible cards and clear hit rates for each one now when i buy slab packs at arena club it finally feels like i know what i'm getting i was able to open an arena club slab pack and and i'll be honest it was a lot better than what you normally do say you go to a card show and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, I'm setting these things off. It's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying... Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. 
off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash VOW net arenaclub.com slash VOW net for 10% off your first purchase on arena club. And we thank them for sponsoring the voice of the wrestling podcast network. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly, but then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the hefty renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. But, okay, let's talk about the WWE Network and how the WWE Network is, is I've argued at times that uh, the WWE Network has really uh, destroyed the price point for a pay-per-view event for a peak a wrestling card that uh, that all your storylines throughout the month have been built to. We've gone from, in WWE's case, charging $60 for this product to charging 10 slashing the, the price point into one-sixth, an 83% discount in the price. A great deal for consumers, a great deal for WWE fans. And not just an 83% savings, but you also get uh, access to whatever is on the WWE Network, an enormous video library and a number of other new shows. But I would argue that the trends around WWE Network subscribers uh, only supports the point that pay-per-views are price inelastic. Let's ask, what is the total, the, the highest possible audience that you can get to buy a WWE pay-per-view? Well, let's just look at what, what is the biggest pay-per-view audience that WWE has ever had. It's about 1.3 million pay-per-view buys worldwide now which was the that's the record for wrestlemania 23 in 2007 that one headlined by the hair versus hair match between uh vince mcmahon and uh that guy from the apprentice i don't know what he's up to these days but and most other wrestlemanias around this time doing 1 million a little bit under a little bit over a million pay-per-view buys worldwide and that's all at the the 60 price point well, $60 in 2013, or 55 in the years before that. WWE cuts the price in one-sixth, cuts the price by 83%, and that does not result in a 6x increase of, of uh, in the number of W Network subscribers. It does not result in 6 million W Network subscribers, the highest that W Network subscribers, even when we total in the free subs, has been 2.1 million. So it took an 83% reduction in price just to double the volume of sales. Think back to our discussion about the AEW price point. I think this undermines an argument for cutting an AEW price point in half and hoping that it will more than double sales. WWE essentially cut its price point by one-sixth, one-sixth, and only then did they double their sales. And really not even, because I'm, I'm counting in some... Uh, 200 to 400,000 free subs in this total. But you can see why maybe George Barrios, Michelle Wilson thought that they could get, as WB publicly stated, that they were hoping to get three to four million W Network subscribers. Michelle Wilson tells a story that we've played the clip of here previously on, on WrestleNomics Radio, where she expresses surprise that uh, there were customers that were paying you know, $55, $60 for a pay-per-view she was surprised that pay-per-views were consumed by a relatively small audience 
uh, relative to the TV audience, yet pay-per-views were the most valuable content. And the strategy was that maybe, since this, this content is so valuable and so, in their view, under-consumed, that maybe there was a way that WWE could extract more revenue or more margin out of the pay-per-view product. And I suspect, in large part, th- therein lies the argument for the WWE Network. And, and one of the keys to uh, making a good pitch about the WWE Network and, and, and making it something that Vince or, or any business per- person would actually want to try to execute is that w- one of the big problems with pay-per-view is that you're splitting the price. In fact, unfavorably splitting the price with pay-per-view providers who are taking about 55% of the pay-per-view revenue. You're taking about 45%. So you're taking just under half of the revenue. Yeah. You're the one who's going through the massive production of putting on the show and doing the content they're basically just providing you with the rails and taking the majority of the revenue so the the w network would circumvent that unfavorable deal go direct to consumer at an enormous cost (laughs) to wwe but the gamble was that you would you would get three to four million subscribers eventually and then that would that the the profitability of the w network at that point would so greatly outweigh the profitability of pay-per-view that within a few years this would become worth it the opportunity cost of, of spending millions and millions of dollars having an unprofitable 2014, this would all pay off and then some within a few years. And that, that obviously never materialized. As of last quarter, W Network subscribers, uh, paid subscribers are at about 1.6 million, not three to four million as they projected. Pay-per-views were more price inelastic than perhaps the former co-presidents accounted for. And see, this discussion of pay-per-view price point inelasticity is coming so full circle here. And, and this is, is an example of the ways in which Berrios, perhaps Michelle Wilson as well, uh, were trying to project big tech strategies onto WWE's business without fully accounting for the ways in which pro wrestling is a very unique product. They figured the nine ninety nine price point something along the lines of what you would charge for a Netflix subscription. I, I, I know Netflix is more expensive than $10 now. But at the time, $10 was about what a Netflix subscription or a Hulu subscription cost. And they were able to argue that, look, they could circumvent this unfavorable split with the pay-per-view providers. It, it, it makes me wonder why, whether, with the benefit of hindsight, whether the a better strategy would have been to go more direct-to-consumer direct with pay-per-view. Which, again, is essentially what, uh, before it signed its deal with ESPN, what UFC was doing was selling pay-per-views through the Fight Pass app. And I know W was doing digital pay-per-view as well before the network. But that's really a time before uh, streaming devices and, and various kinds of streaming TV became so ubiquitous. But anyway, if there is a lesson here, it is do not underestimate the uniqueness of the pro wrestling medium uh, wrestling overlaps a space between sports and scripted entertainment. Neither completely one, neither completely the other. And I think the the WWE Network strategy, in hindsight, again, was a way to over-interpret WWE as scripted entertainment. What do you charge for the scripted entertainment on Netflix? Maybe around $9.99. Without accounting for the ways in which Pro wrestling 
is a live sport. And its peak events, comparable to mixed martial arts and boxing, worth to the consumer nearer to those $100 price points than to scripted entertainment's $10 price point. In other news, as mentioned, uh, Orange Cassidy, the leading seller of merchandise uh, on ProWrestlingTees.com. And uh, it has been pointed out to me that you can actually go to ProWrestlingTees.com and find uh, the weekly, the monthly, and the yearly top sellers. Basically, what you find there is a list of 40 items, in, I, I, and I don't know if they're in order of uh, best-selling item first and the 40th best-selling item last. I, I would guess that's what it is. But if you go to their top sellers by year, uh, two of the top five are Orange Cassidy shirts. The mystery grab bag is the the first one, so that uh, that credit to a certain personality or brand doesn't really go uh, to that item. But then number two is an Orange Cassidy shirt. Number three is another Orange Cassidy shirt. Number four is an Owen Hart Dark Side of the Ring shirt. And then number five is an Inner Circle shirt. So I, I would not be surprised if that reflects the sales for AEW directly as well. So is Orange Cassidy a draw? Well, I, I think he's a strong merch seller. I think there's evidence there. Can we corroborate that with another or other metrics? Well, let's see. Uh, when it comes to quarter hour viewership, I always advise caution whenever trying to dig into quarter hour viewership. But we do see Orange Cassidy appear in uh, four of the top 10% of uh, segments that overachieved uh, in their quarter relative what that quarter relative to what that quarter usually does in terms of quarter to quarter viewership. You following me there? <laughs> Uh, basically, without getting into a, a longer discussion about quarter hour of viewership analysis, basically, I would put uh, there, so there are a number of segments that Orange Cassie has been in that have done exceptionally well relative what you to what you would expect that quarter to do, and that puts him in the company of about twelve other wrestlers, or I guess eleven other wrestlers who do very well in that area as well. And when I did the Google web search analysis back in uh, around. Let's see, July 2020, so this looked at Q1 and Q2 2020 and a lot of quarters before that. But in Q2 2020, uh, for Google Web Search, among all the other AEW roster members at that time, Orange Cassidy for Google Web Search ranked uh, 12th uh, on a list uh, led by John Moxley, Chris Jericho, Cody Rhodes, uh, Orange Cassidy, uh, just behind Jim Ross and Brian Cage, just ahead of... Britt Baker and FTR and MGF uh, before that. So I, I'm not sure where the Orange Cassidy train is headed these days, but hopefully someone can track it down. So now with the podcast time remaining, I will have a far too short discussion of independent wrestling. I will flex to you that I have been in contact with multiple professional wrestling promoters uh, but there does seem to be here, as, I, as we sit here in November 2020, it does seem like there is light at the end of the tunnel in terms of when live events and the live wrestling business might go back to normal. 
with the news of a number of uh, promising vaccines that seem to be on the verge of at least the initial stages of distribution. And I've been listening to my colleagues in the Voices of Wrestling Slack lament the, the, the quality of U.S. independent wrestling. And I, there are a lot of concerns uh, from inside and outside the wrestling business about uh, both from people within independent wrestling and, and people observing it about what kind of talent is going to be left for the indies to try to use when independent wrestling events can actually run again. And I know there's some concern about the collective and, and how that may have damaged the perception or the trust of wrestling fans in independent wrestling. Uh, the collective being a weekend of events that happened in Indianapolis that resulted in uh, a number of people thereafter uh, contracting COVID. And I know this had some effect on the ticket sales of other independent wrestling events, uh, including those not necessarily at all related to the promotions that were at the collective. Plus, the speaking out movement uh, exposed a number of people and exposed a culture of sexual misconduct and abuse within wrestling and independent wrestling and resulted in the apparent end of the careers of two of the most prominent independent wrestling stars before the pandemic in uh, Joey Ryan and David Starr. Meanwhile, during the pandemic, a number of independent wrestlers have been signed to various companies as various major companies continue to compete with each other uh, for talent. You know, it, at a level that we probably have never seen before, um, without pulling up the databases and the spreadsheets, I, I would guess that we, we right now have more wrestlers uh, under contract you know, among the, I don't know, four or five really big companies in the world uh, than at, at either the, the late 90s peak or the, the 80s peak. Some 300 wrestlers are signed to contract with WWE, and AEW's roster continues to grow, and a number of wrestlers have uh, had at least one-time shots on AEW Dark, some talent even being discovered through AEW Dark. My colleagues in the Slack uh, pointing out that, hey, look, there's clearly talent out there, that, and this, these are talent, these are wrestlers that we never heard of before the pandemic, but AEW was able to find them and show that, look, there is talent out there to be discovered. If only you could discover them. The independents, the super indies, did not discover these wrestlers. Again, these are wrestlers that nobody had ever heard of. People like Will Hobbs, who was out there in the California indies and is now somebody who's showing potential and being featured regularly on Wednesday nights on Dynamite. And I think AEW's ability to discover independent talent uh, largely has to do with AEW's ability to overcome travel expenses that much smaller independent wrestling companies have a much harder time overcoming. AEW, for one thing, has a status to it now being on national television that I'm under the impression that a lot of wrestlers pay the, for their own travel to come to Jacksonville to potentially wrestle on Dark, maybe even Dynamite. And certainly All Elite Wrestling is in a position to pay for travel much more easily with its literal millions of dollars in annual revenue <laughs> compared to an independent wrestling company that probably has microscopic revenue sources by comparison. And travel is an especially crucial hurdle in the United States, maybe relative to the European wrestling scene, just because the U.S. is a larger geographical area. The distance from 
London to Glasgow or London to Dublin or London to Essen in where WXW runs, that's all about a 400-mile trip. 400 miles. Uh, New York to Chicago is twice that, 800 miles. Uh, Buffalo to, to Worcester or Worcester, as some people say. The trips that I that I made in 2019 uh, to Beyond Wrestling, that's about 400 miles for me. Uh, but um, let alone New York to L.A., that's almost 3,000 miles, 2,700 miles from New York to L.A. So the, the United States is not a concentrated uh, population center, as, uh, as the Electoral College will often remind you. And, and this is something uh, valuable to reflect on, especially if... Uh, as training may one day again uh, reopen, uh, the willingness to travel for a wrestler and a wrestler's ability to travel, the free time that they have to travel, you know, if they uh, have a flexible job or don't have a lot of priorities at home that they have to take care of, their ability to travel is a huge uh, benefit to developing a wrestling career. And also social connections are a huge benefit to a wrestling career. You know, mediocre talent can go pretty far if that wrestler is who may have you know middling wrestling talent but is really willing to travel and or is a really great person that everyone loves to have around or just makes the right friends you know that wrestler despite having mediocre talent can go pretty far on the indies thanks to those connections which will get that wrestler recommended in places where that wrestler may want to go and the willingness to travel which will literally allow the wrestler to get to the given show. And likewise, a great wrestler, a wrestler who's very talented, might remain undiscovered due to the inability or unwillingness to travel. I think of all the wrestlers who I know who, who don't have driver's licenses or don't have access to a car. Or there may be very talented wrestlers out there who just aren't the most sociable people in the world. <coughs> I don't know who that would be. But I've heard they're out there. So there's all that going on. And then I think there's also a regional bias because we're all born into a world where there are certain wrestlers with buzz in place who live in certain regions. And then the people who are at an advantage to get certain opportunities on buzz promotions are the people who live nearby the buzz wrestler who are able to find spots in the car to go to the show. So that, again, brings with it a region bias that is indifferent to wrestling talent and is uh, putting you at a disadvantage if you don't live near other wrestlers who have already gathered some indie cred. So that kind of tells me that the future of independent wrestling post-corona is still going to be challenged at developing talent because of these travel issues, low revenues that aren't easily able to overcome the travel issues and the sprawling geography of the United States. And I, I do believe that uh, developing talent on the Indies will be urgently needed. It already was urgently needed before Corona. While at the same time, I think that the brand value of independent wrestling overall as a scene has really grown over the last several years. And within that, certain independent wrestling promotions have grown their brand value and have greatly grown their ability to engage with wrestling fans, mostly through the internet and social media. That's not going away. 
If anything, that's growing stronger. But independent wrestling does have this increasing problem, and that is the, the competition for talent among the major contract companies. And the, the effect of these contract companies like WWE, AEW, etc., the effect of those companies signing talent away is a new phenomenon that was not present uh, to this degree before, let's say, 2014. In 2014, I think as we, we discussed uh, a few weeks ago when we were discussing uh, sort of the history of W Developmental, around 2014, Triple H Paul Vec had seemingly an awakening in his talent philosophy where he suddenly uh, started to value wrestlers with previous non-WWE wrestling experience more than he had in the past. And this coincided with an increase in competition for talent among other smaller companies like Ring of Honor, World of Sport, that upstart in the UK that never really got going, Lucha Underground for a few years there, New Japan also signing a number of wrestlers from uh, English-speaking countries, Impact Wrestling still being out there, and then smaller players like MLW and NWA signing people to contracts as well. That all proceeded... Well, maybe MLW and, and NWA didn't, but that all all those others preceded the launch of AEW in 2019, a company that competed with WWE for every level, well, almost every level of talent, signed away John Moxley and Chris Jericho. Before 2014, independent wrestling talent was undervalued. The U.S. independent wrestling scene, arguably the U.K. wrestling, independent wrestling scene as well, were... I would say, under-harvest for their talent. Their talent was not valued at the highest level in WWE. Now, that talent is valued, I think, more appropriately. That's obviously not going to change post-corona. If anything, the, the talent competition is only going to get more intense. I don't see it getting greatly more intense, but I think it's going to stay, stay at relatively the level that it's at. But the value that all the contract companies have now started to eat up since 2014, increasingly so through 2020, that value is not going to be let go of by those contract companies. Their appetite for talent is not going to diminish. And I remember uh, Voices of Wrestling co-host Joe Lanza making the argument that you know, the independent wrestling talent pool is very deep. And almost no matter how many wrestlers get signed, you know, there's always a, a really great wrestler who no, nobody's ever heard of beyond their local region. There's there's a lot of really good wrestlers out there that nobody has heard of, and my personal experience validates that. And and I remember hearing Joe make that argument and being like, "Yeah, that that is true. That independent wrestling, including U.S. independent wrestling, the, the talent pool is so deep as to be essentially inexhaustible." And I guess I still think that's true. And if anything, AEW's ability to overcome the barriers like travel and still discover new talent prove that to be true. But how will post-corona super indie promotions discover that talent with expensive travel and region bias still in the way when continuing to use familiar talent and continuing to affirm those relationships will be tempting and will seem less risky. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening again. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you did not contract or spread 
COVID-19. I enjoyed my, my Thanksgiving uh, here at home, reviewing some old, not literally reviewing, like don't, don't look for a review out there, but, but re-watching uh, Starcade 83, Starcade 85, Survivor Series 1990, I think I, I watched parts of these. And the, the progressive gimmick that is, that was, Miss Atlanta Lively. That's all for this week. You can see the notes to this podcast at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Become a 5 or $10 supporter today. Read all of my written work for free, ad-free, at WrestleNomics.com. WrestleNomics.com is 100% ad-free because of listeners like you who support at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. If you like this podcast, tell somebody about it. Follow WrestleNomics if you want, at WrestleNomics. Follow me, at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time.